you seen the movie Whiplash? You know that scene where Andrew, the main character, he goes home and he starts practicing until his hands bleed? Well, that doesn't just happen in movies. On today's show, I'm joined by KJ Sorker, the drummer for Destroyed and Pendulum. He used to drum until his hands bled. Now, I'm not going to even try and introduce the guy. He's a machine. And the advice he shares in this episode is absolutely priceless, especially if you're someone who wants to build a career in this industry. Here are three things you'll learn in this episode. One, how KJ got involved with Pendulum and why you need to put yourself out there. Two, the incredibly important responsibility you have as an influential artist. And finally, what it's like working in the studio with Rob Swire. I really enjoyed this episode. I hope you do too. Uh, Now, instead of asking you to leave a rating and review on iTunes, this time I'm going to ask you to do something different. It's really simple. After listening to this episode, I want you to share it with at least one person that you think will benefit from listening to it. Stories are powerful. KJ's advice is powerful. And you never know what kind of impact it could have. Anyway, without further ado, here is KJ Sorka. This episode is brought to you by EDM Foundations. EDM Foundations is my course for new producers, those who've been producing for under 12 months or even those who've just started. The whole idea of the EDM Foundations course is that you learn the fundamentals of music production by actually doing and not just learning the theoretical stuff. The course consists of over 12 hours worth of streamable video where I walk you through the creation of three songs and give you advice and tips for working on your own original alongside them. We've had over 500 people sign up for this course. Many of them have had great results. If you want to learn more about the course, head over to edmfoundations.com. Welcome back to the EDM podcast today. I'm joined by KJ Sorka. Uh, KJ, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for asking. Of course, man. Hey, I'm really excited for this because, uh, I mean, I got into drums at the age of 10, became a producer after that. So to have someone like you on the show, someone of your caliber, um, it's, it's awesome. So thank you for taking the time to come on. Now, for those who don't know you and for those who do, tell us about your background. What do you actually do and how did you get there? Okay, well... Um, I'm a drummer and I started at the age of like, uh, 11. And, um, when I was about 18, I got into electronic music. Um, I was always kind of a musician, drummer, writing songs and things like that. Um, and, uh, messing around on the piano and guitar and bass and stuff. And, um, when I heard, uh, electronic music, I was about 18. Um, I was kind of a late bloomer to electronic music. Um, but the first thing I heard was some drum and bass, uh, LTJ Bookum, MC Conrad, um, Diesel Boy compilation. Um, and he's actually not that much older than I am. Um, and it totally blew my mind, the, the, the fast beats of it. And so I got into electronic music from drum and bass and break beats like Crystal Method and Chemical Brothers and stuff. Um, and that set up a really nice pace for, for my career, um, in the world of electronic music and the world of drumming. And it kind of put me into a class of my own, um, at least when I started and I started putting out videos, um, just real, my manager at the time, he's like, let's just record you, you know, just record you playing. It doesn't, doesn't matter what it is. And those videos kind of went viral a little bit on YouTube. Um, uh, that was when YouTube kind of first started and, um, yeah. And then a lot of stuff fell into place through those videos and through, um, reaching out to various producers in the, in the electronic music world. So were you doing like, uh, like shows at this point, just playing, playing drums at local shows or, or anything like that? Oh yeah, definitely. I had various bands um, up in Seattle, and um, I had a full ride to to Berkeley College of Music in Boston. Yeah, I turned that down to to stay in my rock band. It was either like fully commit, full like to college and move away, 
um, leave my band. And at the time, um, our, it's kind of like high-speed funk rock stuff, very inspired by Primus and Rush. Um, and I was like, hmm, got to totally give up the band if I want to go to college and study jazz. And I'm like, I love jazz. I played jazz in high school, but I don't want to be a professional jazz drummer. I want to be a rock drummer. Um, and at the time, I was inspired by Dave Grohl and and um, Carter Beaufort of Dave Matthews Band and just all the great bands at the time. Of course, the, the entire Seattle grunge movement was a massive inspiration. And there was no college that I could go to to, to do that. Um, and then I, I feel kind of like electronic music was kind of like my college. And then and then also it didn't help when my my school counselor, um, I told him what I wanted to do. And he's like, well, these are your options and, and that's it. What, what were the options? What did he say? He says, you can go um, into the army and play snare drum. I'm like, snare drum? I'm like, that's only <laughs> one piece of a drum kit. Yeah. Um, I played snare drum in high school, marching band, and that was fun. Um, but that was high school. Um, and I and I played the, the, the drums in the jazz band, and that was tons of fun. But, I mean, it was waking. I was being at school at 6 a.m. Um, to, you know, was not that fun. And, like... Oh man, it was it was it was straight out of Whiplash, except the uh, the teacher wasn't, of course, wasn't as, as brutal. The school counselor, he's like, well, you don't need math and you don't need history and you don't need science and all this stuff into the fields that you're gonna go. And I'm like, okay, sweet. So should I just not take those? Um, as I was going into um, junior and senior year of high school, uh, he said I only needed two years worth of, of all those courses. So I started getting more into arts and, um, and I had like three music classes and stuff. And that was definitely what I wanted to do. Um, but I still didn't, I was still pretty lost because, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and stuff were on the radio and was going to their concerts. I was like, that's what I want to do. And there was no really curriculum for that. So I kind of had to pave my own path. What did that look like? Because I remember when I was getting into drums, I mean, I, I would set up my own practice routines. I'd write stuff on the wall, like I'm going to do this song, you know, X amount of times. Did you think about that? Did you have any sort of schedule you created? Yeah, back then it was it was very curriculum oriented, you know, being in, in school, having homework assignments and studying these jazz songs and these um, marching band songs it fit right into my my practice schedule at home for my band and we had some really complex parts what were we called we were called fuse we changed the name of our band a lot but one of the names of our band was fuse and then we switched it to umaguma or umaguma which is a pink floyd album name um that stuck uh, quite a bit but we had all kinds of odd time signatures and and the structure and and the um uh, arrangement of each tune was really bizarre and really long. We'd have these big coda sections at the end of the tunes and these huge two or three minute bridges. So we had to write it all out. Um, but in school, um, I would write out all my rudiments and I would actually, I was starting to write, um, rudiments that weren't on the actual part of the, part of the, the normal rudiments and kind of developing my own style and documenting everything documented all my hours practiced one of the biggest things was the the weekly timesheet that we had to fill out for practice i noticed this was in junior high this was this was way before high school i just couldn't get enough of the drum set and uh, my parents fr uh, freshly split and i was living up at my dad's house and there was nothing to do except play my drums and so I'd start filling out this timesheet of like eight hours on Wednesday, nine hours on Thursday. Yeah, and then like 12, 14 hours on Saturday and Sunday. And the band teacher was like... Did your hands bleed? Oh, yeah, I definitely... Uh, um, it, it was seriously whiplash, like so funny. So they started bleeding because I taped them with electrical tape 
um, I like blue and yellow. So I'd start a kind of a diagonal uh, wrap of, of blue electrical tape, leaving like a one inch space or so. And then I'd fill that in with the yellow. So it'd be blue and yellow or red and green striped drumsticks. And so when I spun them in my fingers, it would look really cool. Um, and I would work on spinning the sticks for hours and hours along with playing. And that was the main thing that made my hands bleed was trying to spin the sticks with electrical tape. But I remember numerous occasions, my hands would be bleeding and I really just couldn't stop playing. And, um, so my band teacher was like, wow, Kevin, like, this is, this is really impressive. He's like, are you, are you actually, are, are you making up these numbers or these actual, um, practiced hours? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else to tell you. I'm just writing the, the hours down that, that I've been practicing. And I really realized that it was a big advantage to practicing that much. And my skill level was, was dramatically increasing. And I started teaching all the other drummers alongside me. And I noticed that I was getting way better that, than them way quicker. And so that was exciting for me to try to teach them all the stuff that I started to develop, too. That was in band class um, in school. And then simultaneously, we're in the band outside of school, um, our rock band. And we were we listened to so much Rush and so much Primus. Um, do you know Primus? I do, yeah. Yeah, they just played London, actually. And um, a little tangent, um, the, the, the drummer, Tim Herb Alexander, he emailed me out of the blue. Um, he's like, hey, this is Tim Alexander. Um, I'm a musician. Like, love your drumming. Do you want to play some music sometime? And I'm like, Tim Alexander. I'm like, God, who yeah, is that? So cool. Yeah, and he didn't say Tim Herb Alexander. Um, so I was like, yeah, man, that sounds cool. Like, what do you play? He's like, oh, I'm the drummer from Primus. And I'm like, and I'm like, Herb? I'm like, holy shit. Blew my mind. And and coincidentally, he lives up in Bellingham, and I, I was living in Seattle, which is like two hours from each other. And so I immediately jumped on the phone with him. And I'm like, first off, you're a really big inspiration, like one of my biggest inspirations on drums. And yes, let's play. Let's do whatever. So we kind of formed this band and uh, we played our first gig a while ago, but but um, but his jump parts were were fairly simplistic, but the way the music came together and the way Les Claypool's um, percussive bass playing was it was really really inspiring to us and our my bass player my friend Jeremy Lightfoot one of my best friends um, he would he was really the only person that would slap the bass like Les Claypool around. And it was just so, so much fun. And we could take the music in so many interesting directions with the percussive elements. Yeah, that's kind of the beginning of my, of my drums and then my drum playing. And then when I heard electronic music, it totally changed everything. So t tell me about that, because I'm really curious about that shift. Um, it's happened to so many people. I mean, started out as musicians, playing more traditional types of music, if you will. And then this comes along, this electronic music, and it's boom. But it seems like you kind of created this hybrid. I really want to hear about that. I'm curious. Yeah, so I was still in high school, um, and our guitar player, one of my best friends, TJ Barry, um, um, Omogama was was me, Jeremy Lightfoot, my my one of my best friends, and then TJ Barry, my other best friend, playing guitar and sing. And I was at his house, and his friend from England, or his his, his was it his cousin from England, was over. Really nice guy. Never met anybody from England before. We were pretty sheltered up there in Seattle, and kind of lived about forty five minutes from the city. So all we we're just very tonal visioned, and and music saved us for sure. He had all these CDs and cassette tapes and things and we started listening to it and i think the one of the first ones he put on was like the crystal method and chemical brothers and that was when the chemical brothers had their big hit block rock and beats i was like so impressed with the drumming and a lot of the chemical brothers stuff um it's actual live drum kits 
uh, beats that have been just looped and stuff and, and tightened up with uh, production and stuff, you know, like shortened the snare drums. and Yeah, and so I was just, I, I couldn't, you know, we smoked some weed and just sit there, just listen. I was just like dissecting all these beats and, I, and it was just so captivating and it just scorched my brain and I was so, I was so just crazy about these beats. Um, I couldn't get it out of my head. I wanted, so I went back to my studio and my practice room and I started putting blankets and towels and tape and various other things on my kit to try to get that muted kind of cut sound that I was hearing with these break beats. And then the break beats turned into the drum and bass stuff um, when I heard LTJ Bookham, Diesel Boy, um, and few other people and so it was basically i realized that it was the same break beat but way faster and i realized that i couldn't really get that sound without the muting and taping techniques that i was started to figure out on the kit if you play a really fast 170 bpm drum and bass beat on it like a rock kit it's just kind of it's going to sound like punk rock yeah, it's yeah. gonna it's gonna still sound rock, but just fast. Um, so with muting all the drums, it turned into a break beat. It turned into a beat that sounded like the kick and snare might not necessarily be from the same drum kit. It sounded kind of sampled, hmm. and now and that was that was it. That was the turning point with hybrid sound. And so my hybrid kit was basically from these muting techniques. Um, and then after that, I got into the electronic side of things like electronic drums. Now, now skip forward a moment. You've got this solo project, Kajasoka. And I think probably what you're best known for, but correct me if I'm wrong, is Pendulum, uh, being involved with Pendulum. I mean, how did that come about? Because I'm sure people want to know. And and another question, what did it really take for you to get involved with a band like Pendulum? Because I think a lot of people underestimate the amount of work that goes into, um, I mean, all the years that you put in to get to a, a point like that. Pendulum is definitely my biggest project that, that I'm involved with. And um, let's see here, MySpace days. Um, uh, MySpace was, of course, a good networking tool, um, just like just like any social media. And Rob hit me up out of the blue um, saying, hey, we're on tour. Love to collaborate with you sometime. And I'm like, Rob, Rob from Pendulum. Pendulum, like, who is that? Um, and then I started researching that. I'm like, wow, okay, drum and bass. And I'm like, wow, drum and bass mixed with rock. And so then I it started putting two, to, two together because I, I heard several of their singles, Tarantula and... and um, and some of the other ones. And this was when In Silico just just happened. They just put out In Silico and they were touring it. So this was quite a while, fairly deep into the Pendulum um, career. So they're on their second album. And he's, he's like, yeah, I checked out your YouTube videos. Um, so it was real quick um, message, real quick dialogue. And when he sent me that message, I sent him a bunch of beats. And at the time, I was sending producers, all kinds of spore, noisy, all kinds of people, beats. Um, There's just live recordings in the studio, um, like eight-minute long versions of me just playing at, at one tempo. And they loved them. They were flipping out. And, they, and a, lot of, a lot of the producers didn't necessarily know what to do with them. Music production was still pretty archaic at the time. Not a lot of people had live drums, especially in the drum and bass uh, at the time. But um, people are starting to catch on. I was doing some tracks uh, with this with a variety of, of producers. And when I was starting the research pendulum, I'm like, wow, like drum and bass at, at this time, I thought drum and bass was, was on the way out. It definitely was in America. And I started researching pendulum. I'm like, man, these guys are like headlining these festivals playing drum and bass and rock because rock was a massive influence for me, songs and things, and, of course, drum and bass and Pendulum. These guys are amazing. 
And at the time, at the same time, apparently they were like, KJ Saka, he's amazing. And I was like, man, how can I get in? How can I play with Pendulum? You know, we're so close. Like, you know, like we'll message each other and we'll say, we'll say we're going to do something. And then like six months later, like, like no messages and stuff. It was kind of the way it was with a lot of people. Yeah, we were just about to, through the messaging, we were just about to to make something legit happen, make some sort of track or something. Um, and I was working with some other people, some other projects to take their projects live when Rob called me out of the blue. And he's like, hey, let me just cut cut to the chase. We'd like to play music with you. We'd like to, to have you part of the band, which would require you to move over to London. Did they have a drummer at this point? They did. Um, and it just didn't work out. What really hit it off was at um, Ultra Music Festival. I was there, it was, night, it was 2000, 2009 maybe? 2008? I was there with BT, um, playing drums with BT and Blake Lewis, who I played with a lot on American Idol and stuff. It was like one of the biggest shows that we played. It was great. And then backstage, I'm like, oh man, Pendulum's here. So I ran over to their um, their trailer and uh, knocked on the door. And MC Verse, he answered and he's like, hey. I'm like, hey, is Rob in there? Rob Swire. And he's like, yeah, who are you? I'm like, I'm K- KJ Saka. He's like, okay, hold on. And then they're all like, I could hear him in there. Oh man, it's KJ Saka. And then they, Rob and Gaz came out and they're like, wow, we're huge fans of you. And I'm like, wow, I'm fans of you too. You know, it, it was, and and then we went out in the crowd and and watched the band playing and and kind of started to develop a rapport and stuff. And that was the, the that if I could share any sort of give any people like advice it would be try to get into the same room with someone try to get face to face because all this social media and stuff is great but we're really cements things um as most as a lot of people know is the face-to-face human-to-human contact absolutely yeah sometimes you know sometimes you do, you you might not even be the best for the job but they like you as a person and that can go a long ways. Anybody can develop and, and get better at their skills. But if a person just doesn't like somebody as a human, then it's never really going to happen. It's hard to change as a, as, a, as a, I guess people can develop as a human, but it's a lot easier to develop a skill, I think, than a, a certain a certain idiosyncrasy of your personality that someone doesn't like. But anyways, um, we liked each other and we hit it off. And I didn't hear anything from him for like six months or so. And I'm like, man, something about that conversation, something about us hanging out, something's brewing. And six months later, that was when he called me up and asked me to join the band. Well, I mean, what was it like? I mean, this, this must have been the pinnacle for you. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was playing a lot of solo shows as KJ Saka all over the world. I, I broke into Europe and... And realized that I had fans and and all over Europe and London. I was playing all over the United States and Canada, but I was still barely paying my bills. It was it was hard, you know, five hundred bucks for a London show, but that I have to fly myself there and rent a car and like get myself to the gig. And but I did it. I didn't I didn't care. I just wanted to go there and play. I knew that people there wanted to see me. And I was noted as like the YouTube hero at the time when I did my first European run. This was when your YouTube like just started. One of my videos of me in my basement hit like a hundred thousand views in like a week. And that was like at the time that that would be like tens of millions of views, I think now. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Everybody, my phone was ring, ringing off the hook and the gigs were flying in, but it was still, I was barely paying rent. And it, that drove me to just continually get gigs. Didn't matter what they were. Um, and when Pendulum called, that was life changing. I was like, "Wow, move to a new country. I've never been before, and actually have 
a decent job, basically. But it was more than a job. It was like they opened up their arms to come into their family and be a part of the writing team and everything. It wasn't just a hired gun drumming situation, um, which was the coolest aspect of it because I feel like I'm more than just a drummer. A lot of drummers are just drummers, and that's great. Um, but I'm real hands-on musical person. Well, I mean, what was so? What was the first show like? Like, you you get up there and you come back down. And like, I just played with Pendulum. I think it was Northampton, or it was like a warm-up show here in in London. Um, and there was like five, seven thousand people there, or something, for a warm-up show. Just super rammed. Um, and I was just scared shitless. Um, and this, I had to get accustomed to the style cause I didn't even know what like tight trousers were at the time. I had these baggy skater pants and I show up and everyone's like two feet taller than I am and they're just freaking skin tight black clothes. I'm like, wow, shit. Okay. I need to try to fit in somehow. And I was like gaff taping my my pants at the ankles um so my the bottom of my pants wouldn't get caught on the freaking bass drum beater with my skater pants and i remember that really they were like making fun of me they're like what did you freaking gaff tape your pants for i'm like yeah i don't know (laughs) style and clothing was always like not my forte at all i feel like i really went through many identity crises over the years i think Joining Pendulum was, I finally kind of sat down in some sort of style, which basically just black all the time, so it's fairly easy. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I was kind of scared shitless. Um, like, I've played bigger shows than that first Pendulum show before on my own, but with my own music, it's so easy. I can play in front of like the amount of people I'm playing in front of, it doesn't really matter because I know the music so well. It's my own music and I can stop and start whenever I want. If I mess up, it doesn't matter because it's just me up there. I can extend something I can do anything. There's this sense of real being free up there with pendulum. We're really locked in to the song. Um, I have four other guys relying on me to keep the pace and play perfect. And so if there's anything that's kind of um, a little stressful during these gigs, it's just trying to play perfect as possible um, and appease the, the players in the band that are right next to me. And still to this day, it's kind of like that too. When we ramped up again, the first couple of shows, I just wanted it to be perfect. And that's some advice I'd give any, any drummer or any musician out there. All you need to focus on is playing your specific part as best as you possibly can. Nothing matters except you playing that part as solid as you can. And it's a big, sometimes it could be a big daunting task if you have a really difficult part to play. As long as you rehearse the crap out of it and you're ready, you rehearsed, you've refined it, and you've memorized it, that's like really, really key. If you go up there and you kind of, little wishy-washy about part that you're playing that's when it can the, some of the stress can can creep up and that's a terrible feeling it's a feeling that it's always there just a little bit and i can I, I consider it kind of being alive up there um if you don't feel anything then that's not good so it's good to feel something it's good to feel a little nerves like if you go up in front of a hundred thousand people and you don't have any nerves at all I don't know. I think that's just a yeah, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, yeah there is because you're got you're, you're about to affect a hundred thousand people's lives. Yeah, I feel feel like it shows a lack of care if you're not if you don't have a, like some nerves. Yeah, you should pick a different profession if you if you don't have any nerves, uh, at least one percent nerves going in front of a hundred thousand people. It also helps you focus, I think. Yeah, we have the ability to change those people's lives for the good or for the worse. Talk, talk about that a little bit. Like, like why, why do you think that? Cause a lot of people think that, um, you know, artists, musicians, whatever, producers, DJs, um, they're not really doing anything for the world. 
Yeah, I, I definitely think the contrary. You know, a lot of times really big artists will go on Twitter rants and stuff like that and and say kind of not very good things for your for your average, you know, 12-year-old kid who's influenced by the world, sitting at home, and anything that they read, they're heavily influenced by, especially a person who is extremely famous. I feel like there is some sort of, we have a responsibility, I think, because so many people look up to these artists and take every single thing they say to heart, or sometimes they don't get the sarcasm. And I love it when it, it's, it's now, you know, Twitter personalities, it's, it's, it's a thing now. Like when Dead Mouse rants on Twitter, it's different than when he first did it. It's, 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 it's funnier now. Before it was like, whoa, like, well, I don't get this. Now everyone understands that he's, you know, he's, it's just the, his personality. You know, it's not necessarily that he's jaded or, or anything like that. He just has a really funny, interesting, dry personality that, that, that if you're in the way, he'll, he'll prick you. And it's, it's funny now, um, but at the beginning, we couldn't figure it out. But he's still, he, you know, with his personality, he still understands that he has a responsibility because it's, it's, you don't have a choice. You've, well, he, he, he does actually, you know, for a person to, to, to make music and to have the career path that they've chosen, which is have millions of fans, it's inherent responsibility to hopefully make those people feel good and not like they want to freaking off themselves, you know, like we really have that, that control when we're up in front of all those people and we're just playing music. We're just doing what we, what we do. And it's inherently making them feel really good, making them dance. They're there for a reason because they love to see that artist play their music. And so it's just this inherent responsibility, you know, especially with artists that talk to the crowd a lot. Beyonce was a really big, huge inspiration for me seeing her live. She played right after us at Glastonbury. I couldn't believe it, actually. It was like, it was Paul Simon, then us, then Beyonce, main stage, Glastonbury. And I'm like, Jesus, like, I felt it was, ama it was amazing. It was a massive honor to play where we were in that set. And watching Beyonce, like, split the crowd and talk to the guys and talk to the girls. And she just had them at her fingertips. She could say anything. And they... The crowd just ate it up. They loved it. And she changed people's lives. It was, it was absolutely incredible. And so that was one of the big moments that I realized, wow, like artists do have a major effect on humanity at its core. It's not just get pissed, get blasted out of your mind and just listen to music. It's they're, they're up there. Swallow, we're swallowing every single word that they say for good or bad. So glad you said that. It's something I haven't thought about much, but what you just said makes complete logical sense. And I don't think it's something that a lot of uh, upcoming producers, artists can consider. So on that note, actually, what advice would you give to the people listening to this who are trying to make it in today's industry? Because obviously, as you know, over the past you know 10 years, there's been this complete explosion of electronic dance music and it's the new thing like kids don't grow up wanting to be a rock star anymore they grow up wanting to be a dj so what advice would you give to to those people listening to this djs are the new rock stars you know they're up there and most djs have have a uh, a, a a comfort zone which is that big dj table in front of them and if you stand behind it it's not nearly as nerve-wracking as if you stand right in front of the crowd with a guitar or singing your brains out and trying to make sure that you're, you're on key. That's my personal opinion. When I do a DJ show, it's like I can be drunk as hell or like whatever um, or like no shoes on, bouncing around. But when I'm on the drum kit and there's no barrier in front of me except for my cymbals and I know that every single hit of my foot on the kick drum and slap 
of my wrist on the snare drum is making those people dance. It's a lot more responsibility. So I really feel like there's a big defi defining line between playing live music versus DJing. But with the DJing, you know, yeah, you definitely dictate how the crowd is going to think, feel, react with the songs that you play, whether yours or whether they're somebody else's. It doesn't really matter. And there is a responsibility. A lot, a lot of them don't realize that. And if they think like that, they might be able to expand and grow their career even more. I mean, at the same time, artists just need to do what they feel is their best creative thing and then do that. A lot of artists, I think the one of the worst things is just following the, the trends and trying to replicate and do what somebody else has already done. If you can do it quick enough, then it might work. But usually by the time you've copied someone and put out something, trend is over. Some advice I'd give is for anybody to just be themselves at the core and not necessarily care about what is trending in music and what is not. I think the most important thing is that your life and, and your career should be in line with your goals and really from the heart goals, not just transcending goals. I, I agree with that, but a lot of people feel this pressure to like jump on the trend because it's a trend and they feel like it's going to be their one shot. You know, oh, I need to make future bass because if I don't do it now, then I'm never going to make it in the industry, which I think is a bad way of thinking. But it, it seems to be the mindset for, for a lot of newer producers, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely something to be said for to for, for, for producing popular mainstream music. It's in the end, it's just it's it's mainstream. And I make mainstream music. Um, Pendulum makes mainstream music. A lot of people make mainstream and all mainstream is is kind of really or, or at least a certain aspect of mainstream music is following a trend. Ho hopefully, I, ideally, the people that are making the super trendy music are really enjoying making it and love making it like future for instance like i love future right now it's such a cool sound there's a saturation of it right now for sure i have this cool playlist uh that i listen to each day and it's inspiring it inspires me to make some of those to add those nuances into my own personal music um with the different different uh drum sounds and things like that and that's kind of what trendy music is all about it adds inspiration to artists music you know there's trend setters there's trend followers um but i think a lot of people don't really necessarily consciously think about it at least the the people who are really carving a path for their career um i mean they always have it on the forefront of their mind what is going to hit in the club what is going to be big i mean we think about that all the time with pendulum and if you think about it too much then you don't put out records. The biggest thing is thinking about it kind of unconsciously while you're producing. You know, we, sitting with Rob in the studio, we, we, like when we were making The Island, we were like, this is, this is going to make the festival goers. Like, we, we're imagining playing these, these tunes in front of 20,000, 100,000 people, thinking, is this going to hit? Are these people going to go nuts? Because that's a... That, it's a great um, visual to have and perspective. A lot of people don't necessarily have that perspective, and I think it's a good perspective to have. Where are you in on the stage? What kind of crowd are you playing for? Are you playing for a tiny little drum and bass room? Are you playing for a, a massive club um, with bottle service? Are you playing for a dirty rave crowd? Are you playing for a big rock festival? Are you playing for EDC festival? Like, it's nice to have that image in your mind, at least a little bit, when you're making a tune. If you want to do that, you know, if you, if that tune is going to be played on the big stage, it's good to have that point of view. Mm. Absolutely, I like that. I have to ask, uh, what is it like working with Rob? In the studio specifically. 
Yeah, I'm going there today, actually, um, to cut some drums. Yeah, and, you know, like a lot of musicians, um, producers, when you're in the studio, we really open our wings and climb out of our shell. If we're in any sort of shell um, any other time, it's, especially for him, it's, it's the most comfortable place possible um talking about techie things trying to get a really great sound out of a microphone whatever it is vocal or a drum um creating some cool innovative bass tone or just coming up with a really really great uh chord progression yeah it's a feeling unlike anything you know like sitting at airport lounges or or sitting on planes or sitting in hotels bars talking it, being in the studio is it's the ultimate home base. That's great. Yeah, it's great being in the studio with him. He's a mastermind. Yeah, I watched a, I might have been in the studio video or something, but I was just, my jaw was dropped the whole time. Yeah, when I first came to London and we started tracking drums for immersion, I always try to fit in, inside some sort of role. When I go into the studio, it's like, okay, I'm going to be a drummer today, or I'm going to be a producer today, or I'm going to be an overall musician today, or I'm going to be a songwriter today. Um, you know, what is kind of my role? Um, and with Pendulum, it's definitely putting myself into that drumming role, but also song song creation, but mainly just drums. Like, how can I get the sickest sound, the sickest sounding beat, the sickest groove, like right now? And it's fun to to define those roles. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what I was saying. Yeah. Like when we first recorded drums for immersion, he was using all these plugins that I didn't have and I didn't know, and doing a lot of various cool um, panning techniques that I'd never done before. And I know a lot about drum recording, and mm. and have a lot of tools to record drums, and they were all new. So I was just like blown away and shocked by every, everything that he was doing and his workflow and he's like check this out check this out and it just kept on blowing my mind with like putting the percussion the percussion in this field this way left of center of stuff and pushing the the percussion back in the mix and then bringing various things forward and i was like fuck me that sounds really really cool it was very eye-opening and it's always a learning experience for, for all of us, really. We're constantly striving to learn the coolest techniques that we possibly can and with music and, and everything else as well, too. For sure, for sure. Um, I've got two more questions to ask. On top of everything else, you also run a label called Impossible Records. What has running that label taught you personally and what advice would you give to producers from the perspective of a label owner? Starting the Impossible Records was a, was one of the best things that I've ever done. It came to my wife in a dream um, that I was going to be that we were going to be label owners. Yeah, and it came to me from frustration. One, um, it was challenging to get my own tracks signed. Um, because they're all a little left of center and, and they don't necessarily fit a very specific mold, which a lot of labels have. And secondly, I saw all my friends and younger DJs struggling to sign their tracks too. So I saw that uh, Sean Downlink um, started up his Uplink label and he's like, dude, it's so easy. He's like, here's these various things you got to do. Just sign up with distribution I get some sort of promo server going and you're off and running. And that was, it was literally like to set the whole thing up in one day. Spent a lot of time working on the artwork and branding and things. Well, my, my advice would be, it's really important to have a voice if you want to start a label and you want it to be, you want it to have some sort of impact. Um, a lot of people start up labels, but they don't have that much of a voice. And it's, it's just more challenging. Um, so I had fortunate to, ha to have my brand that I've 
developed, and it really helped push the label. Um, and I didn't even really think about that in the beginning. And you know, they're like, "Oh, KJ Saka has a has a label," and yeah, and like when Sean created his label, uh, Downlink has has his own label, and Excision has Rotten, and it's a it's a it's a voice that can carry. One of the biggest ones is um, Troy's label, Firepower. Um, his voice really, really carries that label, and everybody knows that any release on Firepower is going to be almost or at least as good as one of that six records, and it is. And uh, yeah, his girl runs it, she kills it, and it's very impressive. Their their whole team everything that they've done that was a really big inspiration like okay what troy and char have done with firepower i wouldn't mind doing something like that too and i was also very inspired by monster cat and all kinds all kinds of other labels and all kinds of other musical styles i'm really into all kinds of musical styles not just bass music i love vocals i love house music and that's kind of what i wanted to do especially with the name i wanted to take something that Someone would think that would be impossible, especially like making their music, making a career for themselves. And, um, and we're kind of like one of our vision and uh, our mantras is, is nothing's impossible. If you got really great music, and you're passionate about creating music, then it doesn't matter how small you are, or how brand new you are. Impossible Records is could be a home for you, a home for your music. Yeah, we we try to mentor a lot of a lot of uh, people, and the biggest thing about Impossible Records is it, it's not just a, a label that will take someone's music and get it charting, get it selling, and and ramp up um, a person's career. It's it's not like that at all. If a person if a person can't put in the work themselves, then Impossible Records won't do much for that artist so we try to teach people we, we give them a massive uh, several pages and documents of things that they can do to help push their career and move it forward a timeline of sorts and we don't manage them but we we definitely manage their expectations and that's what i do at the top i'm like giving them some realistic knowledge like nothing's going to fall out of the sky. If you want, you know, edm.com or whoever to write an article about you, you need to give them something to write about because they're not just going to say, oh, this un this artist that we've never heard of is really sick. Check it out. It's like you got to steer the ship right in front of them for them to see. I want to I wanna quickly talk about that, though, managing expectations because – I think that's crucial. I think a lot of people, I mean, I, I'll get emails from people just running the podcast and then the website. They'll say, how can I do, like, how can I reach this crazy goal? Like, I don't know, Hardwell or Pendulum Influences. How can I do that in six months? It's like, come on, dude. It's, it's not going to happen. What do you think are realistic expectations? I know that's hard to define. Well, it all depends on goal setting and accomplishing those goals, um, like, okay, let's take Hardwell, for instance. I want to be Hardwell in six months. Okay, uh, let's hear your music. And if the music's not up to par, then they got to work on the music. And there's all kinds of various stages to help make a person or make yourself a better producer. There's the whole business side of things, um, which is, if you have the music, it's getting your music on certain channels and and getting it to to the right people. And then, but intertwined with that, it's the whole social aspect and making relationships and being valuable. You know, like anyone can be uh, your new best friend, but like, what is the value? What what can you offer that person um, to? To just be your friend, and then of course, if you have something of value, then you got it's 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 exciting to share it with each other. Um, like me, like I really don't have too many friends that are just friends. Everybody is 
a musician or a DJ or, or a business partner or something. It's very rare that I have anybody that I just walk along the beach with. We don't talk about music or we don't talk about business. Or we don't talk about this or that specific things that, that we are involved with. And it's important for especially young artists to understand that they have to create value just because they make the sickest track that's just as good and on par with Pendulum or or Hardwell, it doesn't mean that anyone's really going to care. And Dylan Ill Gates, he, uh, we talk a lot about philosophy all the time, and he's a great teacher, and, and uh, we love to do workshops together and stuff. And one of his things that he says is he's like, the defining moment in a lot of people's careers or lives is when they finally realize that no one cares. Because when you finally understand that no one cares what time you wake up in the morning, how, when you finish your next track, or when you get your next gig, you finally can like move forward with life. Because it's true, just no one cares. And, and that's when you can actually do yourself. You can do you. And then people will be like, I like that. It's a weird thing. But it's really true. It's like, yeah, it's taking your ego and putting it on the sidelines. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's so true. I wish I learned that earlier in life, you know? Um, <laughs> well, KJ, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been fantastic. I've, I've come away with a lot. I'm sure others have. Um, before you go, where can people uh, learn more about you online, follow your stuff, etc.? I have all my music, show, show dates, loop, loop and sample packs and everything at kjsaka.com. 